0: Health Mastery Cafe is recorded live and produced by DMMD Studios in Atlanta. That's the kitchen sink.
1: Yeah, like, everything. we were
0: throwing the kitchen sink at these people. Next on the Health Mastery Cafe.
1: I am so excited to have one of my good friends and an ICU, a former ICU nurse who now is on what we call the STAT team. Her name is Chanel. Chanel, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you for having me, Dr. Dave.
1: Absolutely. I'm so glad to say, I haven't seen you in such a long time. This is like, I mean, this is is our reality now, like Zoom, you know? Yeah,
2: yes, Yes. absolutely.
1: So um, did you hear that? You heard the news. Um, Anthony Fauci just came out. There is a new variant of coronavirus. It's the Zoom call variant. You've got to wear a mask on Zoom calls. This is, and we're trying to figure out how to get the vet. I'm just kidding. I'm being silly. Um,
2: <laughs> I was going to be like, wait, no. What the hell is going on? <laughs> this was our safe space.
1: Yes, I know, right? So, you know, we're going to have a, a, a candid conversation like we might have in the hallways of the hospital. Um, right. Because I, what I think is that sometimes people don't really understand the the gravity of what's happening. And you see it every single day. First, tell us you know, a little bit about what you do and who you are.
2: So like you said, I um, was an ICU nurse. I did bedside ICU for about six years. And then I joined the rapid response team or SAT team at Piedmont Atlanta hospital. And I've been there for about three years. And in that role, um, I respond to all the code blues, the code stemmies, strokes. Um, I get patients off the helicopter pad. I try to keep Patients, um, on the acute care floors from requiring ICU level care and from, to keep them from arresting outside of the ICU. All
1: right. So So now that's a, that's a, that's a lot of, you know, that's a lot of kind of scary stuff. Tell me what a code blue is when, when you say code blue, what's code blue?
2: So code blue is when a patient goes into cardiac arrest or respiratory arrest and loses a pulse and requires, um, a C L S or B L S, which is C P R and an advanced airway.
1: Yeah, yeah, they they are you know actively dying, and you have to actively try dying. to yeah. stop them from dying, save revive them from dying. Them.
2: Yep, revive them, and then we get them stabilized and move them to the I C U.
1: You know what I what I what I really wanted to kind of just talk about is is your experience with it. Can you remember the first time when you were thinking to yourself? oh, like this is really going down. Like COVID-19 is real. When did you, give me, take us there. When did you feel that?
2: So it was an afternoon. It was a Wednesday, I believe in April. And we were kind of uh, watching New York and everything kind of explode with COVID. And we were kind of waiting to see when we were going to get hit. It was kind of like the storm off in the distance and you're kind of just bracing. You don't know what to expect you don't know what this is gonna look like. So a lot of it was we were preparing and getting ready and we were scared. And then when we started seeing these patients come in through the ER and get admitted to the regular acute care floors, um, it it was scary. We were scared to go into the room. And I think what was most frightening about these patients is how quickly they would decompensate.
1: Yeah. When you say decompensate, you mean, what does that mean?
2: They would crash. They would go into distress. They would get hypoxic, which means that they um, aren't getting the they're not getting enough oxygen and they can't breathe. And so they end up going into multi organ failure very quickly and requiring higher levels of care within a matter of hours.
1: In a matter of hours. Like this is early on. So you you go into a patient's room. First of all, you're afraid to go in because you don't know what this thing is.
2: Yeah, we don't know what we're dealing with. We don't know, you know, we at this point we really don't know anything. Like you're listening to what the news is saying and you know that changes a lot. You're watching and seeing what's happening in New York and across the country and people are dying left and right and there's, there's no treatment for it. There's no way to get them better.
1: Right. Early on, there was no real treatment that we knew about, uh, that was, no. that was even recommended, let alone working.
2: Right. So we get called when the patient starts to have respiratory distress. So will that will look like in the beginning stages is the patient will, um, start breathing fast. They'll get, um, to Kipnick. They'll start requiring more oxygen. Yeah. Um, and so what we'll do is we'll go and assess the patient and these patients will say, I feel fine. I don't feel um, short of breath, I, but they're breathing fast,
1: like and really fast. So give, give us a sense of what fast is, because because really the bedside nurse is is maybe one of the kind of first to to see that the patient's not going to be doing well. Right. You guys kind of come and descend on the patient to assist the bedside nurse. This is, mm-hmm. you know, you guys are like the A-team. You're going around yeah. kind of seeing where there's trouble, right?
2: They, they call us when their patients are um, starting to decline or have a change in vital signs or yeah. mental status or whatever that may look like. Um, so, dechipnea or breathing fast is the first sign that your patient is... Um, something's wrong. So to keep, so you and I, we breathe between what 12 and 18 times a minute is considered normal. Yeah. Um, these patients will be breathing over 30 times a minute,
1: 30 times and a minute,
2: over 30. Sometimes we've seen patients breathing 60 times a minute. Like they're you're, panting. Really yeah. hard. You're, you're panting. You're literally panting when
1: you're going to. Yeah.
2: Right. And this will happen um, with, and what we noticed is someone would be fine And then within a few hours, they would just fall off this cliff and be in complete distress. And the first thing I noticed with COVID, unlike other patients that have go into respiratory distress, was the blood gas. The blood gas. So the blood gas will show you um, it's arterial blood that we draw. Yeah. And we run it through a machine and it shows you how well you're oxygenating in um how well you're taking in oxygen and how well you're breathing off co2 yeah and also gives you an idea of what your metabolic status is right so a lot of the times patients their metabolic um their metabolic system will kick in to compensate for what's wrong with your respiratory system yeah and vice versa but with these patients they would be what we call happy hypoxics So none of their regulatory systems were kicking in, which is scary. So they didn't know they were in trouble and their oxygen levels on the blood gas would be dangerously low. So here is,
1: this is, this is a really important point for everybody to understand our bodies are built with this system to help us compensate when something goes wrong with the breathing, right? You breathe in healthy um, oxygen O2, you breathe out, unhealthy co2 carbon uh, uh, dioxide what you're saying is that that typical system that helps you fight changes was not active in people with covid very different from other patients
2: correct so you would have patients were still able to breathe off co2 but they weren't absorbing oxygen like a normal patient so this was frightening and, um, and a lot of times the blood gas wouldn't match the picture until it was too late mm. and, um, you would have patients in the morning on maybe two or three liters of supplemental oxygen. And then towards the end of the shift requiring, um, the, the full amount of oxygen that we can give someone. Right. And,
1: and that's, that's before they get intubated. Correct. Right.
2: So we would move them to BiPAP, which um, is a mask that's very uncomfortable that forces air into the lungs or CPAP, which is continuous air into the lungs. Um, and this was very uncomfortable for patients and pretty traumatic because after a while, you you'd notice these trends with these patients, you could almost map out the course they were going to take with covid and they would be okay for a few days. And then around day seven, like five to seven, they would take this turn either for the worse or for the better. Yeah. And you could almost map it out after a while of where these patients were gonna head. And in my position, I was very fortunate to see it from a position of seeing these patients, seeing these, excuse me, oh my gosh. Are you there? Okay. Yeah, I'm still here. Seeing these, seeing these patients on the floor and in an acute care setting, and watching them kind of digress, if you will, over the period of the hospital into the ICU, and then ultimately dying, and um, you know we kind of learned firsthand what COVID was doing to the lungs and the body, and what kind of course you could expect with these patients.
1: Yeah. Did you ever see x-rays of these patients? What, what did the x-rays look like?
2: I've never seen anything like this. So their x-rays would be whited out and it wasn't fluid. It wasn't, um, anything that you could suck out of the patient, like bronch. Like you and I are, when we worked together in the trenches, we would have patients that would flash have terrible pneumonia, different things, but, um, and they would be whited out, but these COVID x-rays were frightening yeah. because there was no, you would look at the x-ray. And when I first saw my, uh, first couple of x-rays that I would see, I was like, how is this possible? And why does it look like this? Yeah. And they would be completely whited
1: out. Yeah. So let's and- describe to people because what, what we'll do is just draw people's attention to when they've all seen x-rays before, the place where the lungs live inside the chest, Where they're, you know everybody's used to seeing an x-ray with the ribs coming around, but there's this dark space, the black space in between. Well, that's where the lungs live. What you're saying is there was no black space. It was all white. Right. And that's all the infection and the immune system yep. fighting the infection. There was no yep. healthy lung that you could see.
2: So these patients didn't have any lungs to breathe with. And that's what made it so difficult to oxygenate them, because despite putting them on a ventilator, despite giving them all the pressure support and oxygen that we could, those lungs were so uh, fibrosed and so um, stiff that we couldn't get them to do their job. Yeah. So a lot of patients were requiring. Um, ECMO circuits early on. And we ran out of ECMO circuits, which is a heart and lung bypass machine where a machine does all the work for the lungs and the heart by oxygenating it and moving it through the body.
1: Yeah. You Um, literally are, that is the highest level of life support when you've got a machine acting as your lungs, essentially.
2: That's the kitchen sink.
1: Yeah, Like we were
2: throwing the kitchen sink at these people
0: don't go away. We'll be right back. This episode of the Health Mastery Cafe is brought to you by Prevent Clinic and by season two of The Good Doctor TV with Dr. Dave. Find The Good Dr. Dave on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and subscribe on YouTube at The Good Dr. Dave. That's the kitchen sink.
2: Yeah, like everything. we were
0: throwing the kitchen sink at these
2: people. Um, But then er later on, we started to kind of watch these patients and learn. And there were things that we were able to do at the bedside from a nursing point of view to try to stay on top of these patients from getting them to that point. But with COVID, the patients really had to fight. Um, We would have them do proning position where they would lay on their stomachs. Um, for hours of a time to try to open those lungs up. yeah, uh, we would try to so literally turning
1: somebody you know, on their stomach, yep. you know, essentially the all the time. Yeah, have,
2: all the time, and people would have to sit at that for hours just to keep from getting a tube down their throat. And it was awful. And um, you know, we would try to move patients quicker onto, high flow nasal cannulas, which is a lot more oxygen and, um, oxygen and heated, uh, heated oxygen, if you will, and humidified oxygen and more CPAP to try to keep those lungs expanded and open. But it was a challenge trying to keep these patients from going in the wrong direction.
1: Yeah. Um, and And that must be you know when you when you think about it, I mean, just the the task at hand keeps you busy enough. But when you've seen this patient after patient after patient, it's got to wear on you to say, "I mean, is there anything we, I mean, we're used to being able to to save the the the, the vast amount right. of people who come, the vast majority of people who come in. We, it, there's something about medical science that has armed us with the tools to save a lot of lives and we have grown um you know accustomed to be able to use those tools when those tools fall flat your best tools your best life support can't do it that's got to take a toll on you emotionally
2: it does i you know um i'm i'm not going to lie i've been really burned out um after this year i've a lot of my colleagues and um, co-workers are extremely burnt out um, it's frustrating uh it's frustrating when you despite all your best efforts your nursing interventions trying to get ahead on things um the things you do to prevent uh, from heading in the wrong direction it was like having your hands tied and it was going to happen no matter what you did, it was going to take its course and after yeah it it was it's definitely it's it was definitely a struggle and you know we see a lot of different things and but covid was very hard because a lot of people that weren't accustomed to being sick and weren't used to being sick were now in the hospital dying and they've never yeah. been in the hospital before because they were healthy and the people that didn't die now have fibrous lungs and damaged lung tissue or a cardiac or a kidney issue after COVID. So even though they did survive, what does that survival look like? You know what I mean? Yeah. And um, the, in the, the trauma that a lot of these people had to go through, not being able to breathe, not having loved ones there.
1: To come you can't to have your loved ones there. Talk about that. I mean, yeah. You know, it is hard enough to be going through that, but to go through it completely alone. I mean, most of these people can't, you know, you 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 can't talk for yourself anyway. I mean, they're, you're trying to breathe. There's no talking. Right. You can't advocate for there, yourself.
2: You can't advocate for yourself. And, and part of ha- going through that, you have the family and you're able to comfort the family and the family's able to spend time with their loved one before they die. I think the hardest part was seeing so many people die alone and so many people going through the last couple days of their life, fighting alone to breathe and not being around their loved ones and being able to say their goodbyes. And, um, a lot of the times the only people there to comfort them were the nursing staff, the APPs the um patient care texts and the doctors and uh, you know it's it it's heartbreaking to see that um to have seen that happen to have people die alone you, see, you never want someone to die alone
1: yeah I mean you you were you were you were not only you know their caretakers you were not only their health care providers you were essentially their family you were yeah. all they had. In those last moments, nobody could come in there.
2: No one could come in. And um, sometimes like, even though you had a thousand things to do, your phone's blowing up, you needed to be other places, but sometimes that the most important place to be was at their bedside. And um, that was hard having to make decisions. Do I stay with this person while they're dying? Or do I move on to the next person and try to save them? And uh, so you really did need to make some judgment calls, you know. Um, so that it was it was hard.
1: Yeah. And especially, yeah.
2: you know, there were patients still in the hospital without COVID that didn't have their family members, too. So um, people going through cancer, having babies, you know, different things like that.
1: Yeah. Um, well, so, you know, that's have- another interesting point, you know, like even people who are not fighting the COVID fight. Because of the COVID battle across the country, even those people couldn't have people in their rooms, you know, to your point, I mean, you know, cancers, babies, you know, all the things where you would want to have somebody with you. It just couldn't happen for anybody, not just the COVID patients.
2: Right. And, you know, David's, I'll never forget this because this patient ended up passing away and he was in his uh, mid fifties, young, healthy guy, ran triathlons Um, no past medical history got COVID and I'll never forget before he went into the ICU. He said, I wish I wore a mask. I wish I would have took this seriously. And, um, he ended up spending about a month in the ICU and never, never came out. And I'll never forget like that regret he had of not taking it seriously, And, uh, you know, it's unfortunate that there are so many people that share that story. Um, You know, young people, people in their 30s that you don't hear about. Um, We had a 31-year-old that uh, actually survived, but um, he was in the hospital for two months. No past medical history, would not wear a mask, went to parties, didn't take it seriously, ended up in the ICU, Um, We ran out of options in the ICU and he ended up being cannulated for ECMO. And um, for about two weeks, I thought he was going to die. I didn't think there was any possibility, but because of modern medicine and prayer, he made it through and he's home. But, you know, he's still struggling with wounds and um, different things that he acquired because he was so unstable, you know, we couldn't turn him in the hospital. And, right. uh, you know, he had a trach and a feeding tube place, 31 years old, no past medical history. These are the patients you don't hear about. Yeah. He's got to learn how to walk again. You know, he's, he's going it. to therapy a couple times a week. And so... When I, people talk about, you know, this being a survivable virus, you got to ask yourself what does survive survival look like? You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Do you just want to be alive kind of hanging by a thread or would you prefer to to thrive and be able to enjoy your life? And what you're saying is that you gave two great examples of how people who um, haven't taken it seriously for whatever reason, Um, have paid the consequence. And we're not talking about people with pre-existing conditions. We're not talking about people who are 65. and We're talking about young, otherwise healthy people who this virus did in.
0: Yep. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Find The Good Dr. Dave on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And subscribe on YouTube at The Good Dr. Dave. A lot of nurses and doctors
2: I know quit because of covid because they were they didn't want to risk it or they were too they were um in the at-risk category of age or you know they had loved ones at home that were immunocompromised so Yeah, you don't them, want to
1: bring it home. That's the last it, thing you want to do. You don't want
2: to bring it home. And you know, with that being said, um the only people I would see were my colleagues and my fiance. I I didn't see my family for about a year and you know, I didn't hug my family for maybe about a year just because I was so scared to infect them. Yeah. Because, you know, one, you, you don't want to be, you, you didn't know how this virus was going to affect you. Were you just going to lose taste, have a head cold, or was this virus going to kill you?
1: Yeah. Or, yeah. or the opposite of that is you have no symptoms whatsoever and have no idea you're passing it along. That's the scary exactly. thing then. Yeah. That's the scary thing now.
2: Frightening. That And so you don't know who's infected, who's not infected, who you can get sick, who you can't get sick. And I don't, as a health professional, you know, you do no harm. So you, you never want to put someone else at risk. Um, so scary. You felt like a leper, like I felt like a leper. I, I don't know if that's the right thing to say, but I.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, that conversation is happening Literally thousands and thousands of times. Still today, yep. the numbers are still horrific yep. today, and the numbers yep. are horrific today, Chanel. Still, because of the non um, the the person who has no symptoms whatsoever. Now, whether you call it pre symptomatic, meaning they'll eventually go on to get some symptoms, or they stay completely asymptomatic, it doesn't yep. matter. That is to me has always been. The wild card, and people didn't like yeah. it when I said it last year in the spring and in, in the summer, but that's still today. And then we have data now that says the vast majority of spread has to be coming from people who have no symptoms because if somebody's Wait. hacking and caught looking, you can't go to Target and have somebody <laughs> sneeze, man, without know, people running things. away from you. It's right?
2: like yelling bomb in an airplane. There it's you go. Yeah, right? So God. we
1: know that it's not the symptomatic person that's spreading it. This just, right. just makes sense. Okay? Here is, here is my question to you For the countless thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of Americans who still today think that this is a game, think that this is a hoax, that we're all sort of being duped, what, what do you say to that? Like, where, where do you even start?
2: I don't know. I mean, it's, it's crazy. It's, uh, I like I, to them, I would say, I wish you could see through my eyes of what this virus does. It's not a hoax. It will kill you. Um, it's a fence. It's almost offensive at this point for people to don't take this seriously.
1: Why do you say because that? Why do you say it's offensive?
2: To me it's offensive because we're so short staffed. We have been we have no ICU beds. You know, we still don't have ICU beds. We're still short staffed. We're tired. I mean, I work 4 to 5 12-hour shifts a week what? and I'm running the whole time because I'm we're short. Like in someone's we've you know and that's across the board that's nurses are run ragged and you know and it's a it angers me that being so tired that people uh i don't even it's like being that exhausted and you're working so hard and for somebody to not take that this virus seriously is a slap in the face of to to me and every medical professional that hasn't seen their loved one in a year has worked countless hours, has not slept. Um, You know, it's, I'm trying not to, sorry, my dog's barking. No,
1: No, he, yeah, he's mad um, at it too. No, let him talk. No. He's mad
2: at it too. Yeah. Um, It's, it's just, it's infuriating because of how hard you work and the blood, the sweat and the tears and the frustration of trying to take care of patients and working so hard to make these people better and to support them. And then to have people that don't believe it's real, those are the ones that make it dangerous. They're the ones that are gonna keep this virus going, the ones that don't take it seriously. And those are the ones that I see that come in that were in denial. And now you're here because you weren't taking it seriously. And now I'm having to bust my ass more and continuously over this next year because you didn't think it was real. Yeah. And I'm not trying to victim blame. And I understand things happen and people get sick, but um, it's exhausting. And uh, like, there's been times where I love being a nurse. You've worked with me for years. And there were times where I wanted to quit. I didn't want to be a nurse anymore. I'm so tired. I mean, yeah, it's, um, it's just frustrating.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: And you know, and people call you a hero and, People say all these things, but it's like you don't feel like a hero after a while. Yeah. You know, sorry. Yeah.
1: No, absolutely. No, you see so many who didn't make it. It doesn't feel like a hero, does it? It doesn't feel like we're, no. we're winning the battle at all.
2: No. no. And, uh, you know, and people don't realize that nurses have gotten sick and uh,
1: and I. I've had
2: loved ones. And died. and yeah. I think a lot of people don't understand the realities of what this looks like and what it can do. And if you don't see it every day, then you're not going to know. So I don't blame people that don't take it seriously because they don't know, but it's, you want to nurse is the number one trusted profession. And for years now, and you want to say, trust us, you know, I don't want to see you in the hospital. I don't want to be the only one at your bedside holding your hand. I don't want to be the one pushing morphine to make you more comfortable when you no longer can breathe. I don't want to be the one zipping up your body bag and pushing you into the morgue. I don't want to be that person. I can't be that person anymore. I I don't want to be that person anymore. So it doesn't, that to me, isn't being a hero. It's a, it's, and you don't you don't want anyone to experience that, not right. being able to breathe.
1: Yeah, boy, that's no. sorry. Uh, I... No, I'm I'm so glad you're able to share that because if we if we sugarcoat, it's not going to make it better. If you don't no. tell the story, if you don't give us that experience, I'm so, um, just appreciative that you are willing to share that raw, authentic, that story, telling that story is courageous. And it's exactly what I expect of you because I happen to know you, but it's exactly what we expect of all of our nurses. And we sometimes take, I think for a long time, we've just take we've taken a lot of stuff for granted. We've taken nurses yes. and hospitals and all that stuff for granted. And boy, I, I bet every day, Chanel... you know, what you've seen over the last year makes you live in a constant state of just like gratitude because of what you see.
2: Um, definitely. I, I will say it is a gift in that way where you appreciate your family. You appreciate, you feel, I feel very blessed, um, ways. Um, like, you know, me, uh, personal level and you know that I am kind of a run and jumper this year I you know at one point I wanted to do something for me I actually got a covid tattoo um <laughs> as self care because you only live once and you know eat the cake wear the shoes that has been my motto all year you know, life is very short. You don't know what's gonna happen next. Just enjoy the people next to you and around you and, you know, live live for each experience.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: Do you want to see my COVID tattoo?
1: I would love to, is, is it showable? <laughs> yeah. It <is. laughs> I was gonna ask.
2: <laughs> um, I wonder if I can show you there.
1: You see it? Oh wow! So, Explain that tattoo. So
2: this that year, is great.
1: I've,
2: it's a um, hand of the living holding the hand of the dead, and it's kind of our connection to to life and death. And I feel like, as a nurse, I've learned, and you know, being an ICU nurse, you're around death a lot. And it's something you're always in the bal the the balance of. But this year i really kind of realized um, in COVID how as a nurse you're almost this conduit between life and death. You kind of play in the balance and there, you know, we're always walking hand in hand with our own mortality. And I think this year I kind of learned that, like you said, you can't, you gotta live in gratitude because death is always right next to you. And I think I saw that a lot this year. So I got a tattoo randomly one day, was going to the grocery store, um, saw the tattoo shop, pulled over on my day off, you know, mask and everything, it was just me and the guy in the shop. And I said, this is what I want and um, did it. My fiance texted me and he's like, what are you doing? like just finishing a tattoo headed to the grocery store do you need anything I was like, what? <laughs> i'm what just
1: going to get do? a tattoo going to pick up some cleaning oh, no nothing what, what what do you need
2: <laughs> but you know it was a, the tattoo is kind of a reminder of this year and yeah. how closely we walked with death and um so i kind of wanted to commemorate that
1: so yeah yeah wow such a um um it's a heartfelt story and and it's also why i really wanted you to to be on because of how deeply you care and give and love your patients and love what you do and nobody could tell that story um like you i am so appreciative of your time thank you for being on the show
0: This episode of the Health Mastery Cafe is brought to you by Prevent Clinic and by Season 2 of The Good Doctor TV with Dr. Dave. Find The Good Doctor Dave on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And subscribe on YouTube at The Good Doctor Dave.